but it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality and move forward. We all have a desire and a yearning that has been put in all of us by our creator. Why else then is it that all across culture, all different tribal groups that are cut off from one another, why do they all come up with this idea of a sort of dying and rising God, right? Okay, only the Jews had a real understanding of sin, right? Because you can't have an understanding of sin unless you have a holy God to measure it against. Well, they didn't have a holy God. And yet, Justin, even though they didn't have the word sin, they understood the concept of taboo. They understood that there were certain crimes that sort of brought uncleanness upon the whole tribe, the whole village. And so all of these myths come together with dying and rising gods and things. And here's the point. Okay, yes, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But if Jesus came and he fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets, but he had nothing to say to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles had no inkling of his coming, no preconditioning. It would seem like a foreign God had invaded the earth. Had invaded the earth. Had invaded the earth. What is happening? What is up? Hold out your glass because we're about to fill it up. Welcome to the Prometheus Lens Podcast, the place where the conversations are always enlightening. Here we use the allegory of the Prometheus Lens to take a second look at everything. My name is Justin Brown. I'm an independent researcher and podcaster. You may know me from my other works with the Dig Bible Podcast. This is my solo project where I just explore any subjects that I find fascinating. Welcome to the Hero's Journey. In the distance looms a mystical mountain. At its peak, a great fire burns, concealing the Prometheus lens, an ancient artifact said to reveal the hidden truth within a deliberately darkened world. Join us as we travel and explore the vast unknown. It's a hero's journey with dragons to slay, damsels to save, and innumerable treasures to hoard. Torches high. The Smithsonian, they'd call wind of a giant skeleton. You would send their agents out to get it. But it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality. Truth gets marginalized. And sometimes you have to look on the margins for the truth. We are all on the hero's journey. You know, look at it from a different perspective. A different perspective. A different perspective. As a podcast editor, I know what it's like for long nights. And sitting at the computer and your eyes just start to go down. And you're nodding out, trying your best to finish your workload. You can slam down a bunch of monsters in Red Bull and slowly kill yourself. Or you can go with God's nectar. KLR Joe's Coffee Company. They're a proud sponsor of the show. Check those guys out. 
many times I uh, drink me some of that Flatline Joe. Perks me up, man. Gets me going without all the jitters. Helps me power through projects. So help support the show. Help support a brother in Christ and a small business owner with Kevlar Joe's Coffee Company. Welcome back, guys. Uh, got another uh, great episode for you guys and a guest that was kind enough to sit down and talk to us. Uh, you know, he's a professor of English at the Houston Baptist University, uh, where he holds the chair in humanities. Uh, Luis Marcos. You know, he's earned his uh, BA in English and history from the Colgate University, and his MA and PhD in English from the University of Michigan. Uh, while at Michigan, he was specialized in uh, British Romantic poetry, literature, theory, and the classics. So uh, I'd like to introduce to you Luis Marcos. Luis, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, this is a great podcast and important stuff to talk about today. Just uh, give us a little introduction. Who, you know, who are you and what's your uh, passions and specialties and some of your books you've written? Just kind of give everybody a feel for you that's not familiar. Well, great. Well, the best way to start is that I am the grandson of four Greek immigrants. All four of my grandparents were born in Greece, came to America about 1930, almost 100 years ago now. Uh, and they're actually from Sparta. And my name, Lou or Louis, is actually Leonidas if I'd been born in Greece. So if you, I'm sure most people have heard of the 300 Spartans. So I'm more an Athenian by nature, but I am a Spartan. I move forward, uh, you know, fight the good fight, as they say. And so I grew up with these myths not just as a literary thing, but as part of my legacy as a Greek, because every word is Greek. If you've seen my big fat Greek wedding, <laughs> I live that life. It's kind of fun. Um, and uh, now my specialty, you know, for when I went to my PhD, it was the Romantic and Victorians, but I'm always doing anything to do with ancient Greece or Rome and anything to do with Lewis or Tolkien or apologetics, classical education. And so, you know, most Christians you talk to, especially if they're into apologetics, they will tell you that C.S. Lewis is one of their role models, right? But I'm lucky because C.S. Lewis is a double role model because he was also an English professor, as I am. And one thing that Lewis gave me permission to do, if you will, is to be a generalist, right? So the problem with the 20th, 21st century is everything is overly specialized, experts, all this sort of stuff. And we need more generalists. We need more people that can sort of look at the history of humanity, look at the literature and the history and the philosophy and the art and the music and make connections. And so Lewis has always encouraged me to read widely and think widely and make connections. And, you know, if you start with the myths, it's a great way to start making connections and understanding the nature of man. And uh, your uh, most recent book was uh, The Myth Made Fact. And uh, he goes through all these uh, stories and breaks them down through a, a Christian uh, lens. And I love that, how you uh, draw out the connections and you even have uh, like questionnaires at the end. You know, if you're like teaching these to others and try to provoke some good conversations, I really, really enjoyed that book. Thanks. I, I, I did. I first started working with all these classical schools because I did a book called From Achilles to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics. And I looked at the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, and the Greek tragedies. I also wrote a book called From Plato to Christ. But what I wanted to do in uh, The Myth Made Fact is, in a way, go even deeper than the epics and the tragedies. Let's get down to the very raw material out of which people like Homer and Virgil and Sophocles and Aeschylus and all these people wrote. Let's get to the essence and let's look at these stories. And, you know, it's kind of strange, but I've always been one of those Christians who 
you know, I can read mythology devotionally. I mean, I'll read Christian devotional books, but sometimes I am even more challenged by reading an ancient myth, right? I mean, Justin, all of us dream, but when a whole people group or a whole nation dreams together, I think in some ways that's the origin of myths. Myths tell us our deepest longings, our deepest desires. We want to know about our beginning and our ending, creation, judgment, why things are the way they are. And so we can learn so much about not just the ancient Greeks, but about ourselves as human beings by studying these myths. And even though the people that fashioned those myths did not know all the answers, they didn't have access to the Bible or anything, they did ask the questions quite well. And it's the same questions we're still asking today. Uh, just quickly, one of the reasons why the original Star Wars trilogy has so much resonance, and most of the other ones since then are just hit or miss, is because those original, episode four, five, and six, were grounded in the fact that uh, George Lucas was reading Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, looking at the archetypes, looking at the stories that come up again and again across culture, across time. And he embedded all of those archetypes in those characters. And that's what makes those original series the best of all, because it is our story. It's the story of this. It's not politicized like the annoying uh, Ray or whatever her name is. It, is. it is actually, let's get to the heart of what it means to be human. And that's why, again, they have the most resonance, even today, the most resonance. Yeah, and they just, uh, you know, there's such things as universal truths. You know, you can look through every culture. We all know that it's wrong to steal. We all know it's wrong to, to kill, to lie, these things like that. So, you know, we have to have universal truths. And I think that's just uh, sprinklings and hints of God. And I loved in the Naked Bible when I heard you talk with Dr. Michael Heiser, because I've thought this way for a while. And I had never heard anybody else share that opinion and really, I guess, articulate it as good as you did. But it's like when I would read these myths and these stories of these other dying and resurrecting gods and stuff where most atheists want to say, well, this is proof. This is an older story that this Jesus is another archetype, another made up story. I always seen it as, well, no, it's it's a preconditioning is how I always seen it. it was like a preconditioning to all the nations of the world. God is giving hints of the truth to all the people of the world in palpable language and stories that they can understand and accept that way when the real Messiah comes, it has hints of things that are familiar to them and that they are more able to accept, I guess, if I'm wording that correctly. But I'll, well, that's one it, thing I always thought was really cool. That's a, it's exactly true. And, you know, you got to think about it. I mean, so are you saying that before the coming of Christ, God completely ignored 99% of the human race? I mean, yes, only to the Jews did he speak directly with his, the Old Testament with the prophets, but he didn't ignore us. God only spoke directly to the Jews, what we call special revelation through the prophets, through the Old Testament. He, again, he didn't ignore the rest of humanity. He spoke to the rest, the Gentiles. He spoke to us through what's called general revelation, through creation, through our conscience. He spoke through reason, through imagination, and what C.S. Lewis liked to call the good dreams of the pagans. Uh, your word there, preconditioning, is a perfect one. Right? God has written eternity in the man. We all have a 
take back to. We all have a desire and a yearning that has been put in all of us by our creator. Why else then is it that all across culture, all different tribal groups that are cut off from one another, why do they all come up with this idea of a sort of dying and rising God, right? Okay, only the Jews had a real understanding of sin, right? Because you can't have an understanding of sin unless you have a holy God to measure it against. Well, they didn't have a holy God. And yet, Justin, even though they didn't have the word sin, they understood the concept of taboo. They understood that there were certain crimes that sort of brought uncleanness upon the whole tribe, the whole village. And so all of these myths come together with dying and rising gods and things. And here's the point. Okay, yes, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But if Jesus came and he fulfilled the Old Testament law and prophets, but he had nothing to say to the Gentiles. In other words, the Gentiles had no inkling of his coming, no preconditioning. It would seem like a foreign God had invaded the earth. But in fact, Jesus not only fulfills the Old Testament law and prophets, he fulfills the highest yearnings of the pagan people. So he is truly the savior of the world. So this argument that a lot of people think is the greatest argument against the gospel is in many ways the strongest one for it. It would be a stumbling block, Lewis said, uh, if, if those myths were not there, because then it would seem like, again, a foreign God who cared nothing for the Gentiles just showed up. Right. So let's follow the, not just follow the prophecies, let's follow the yearnings the myths, the desires, the inklings, all of that sort of stuff. We're following this, and those are leading up as well to the historical God-man who died under Pontius Pilate and rose on the third day, historically, not just mythically. And I even love how you mentioned it was, you know, written in creation. You know, we just, uh, with our other podcast, uh, the Dig Bible Podcast, we done a, a two-part series episode on uh, astronomy in the Bible and how you can see that every single culture throughout the world has been looking to the heavens and mapping the stars and, and all this. And then you have the, the crux, which is, which is the cross. And well, the sun takes its path continually throughout the year. But I think it's either the, the winter solstice, it starts going downward into, uh, into the horizon, and it goes for three days downward Ooh. to the crux, and it stays in that position for, uh, for three days, and then it starts its forward Ooh. ascent again. So, I mean, it's, the, the story of Christ is even written in the stars. Wow. And most people believe that December 25th, used to be the winter solstice, December 21st. I don't know if there's a mixing up of the calendars or whatnot, but what they called the, the birthday of the unconquerable sun. And so it's very possible that the original uh, Christmas would have actually fallen on the winter solstice to make that even more powerful. Uh, well, that, that, that's, but okay, that, that's, but it's interesting, like there's a foreshadowing even then. And that's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, uh, which uh, I loved listening to Mike too, where he he laid out all the astronomical signs of Revelation twelve and how that was uh, oh, the birth yes. of Christ, and you can put it into a computer because you know it takes the same 
right. path year after year, and you can rewind the hands of time like a clock, you know, because where they've been mapping all these stars and constellations for so long. So he was basically saying, you know, that the woman clothed in the sun was Virgo. Uh, the 12 stars on her head was the constellation Leo because of the 12 stars in that constellation. Right. The sun clothed, the moon under her feet, the dragon uh, Hydra underneath waiting to devour the woman. It pinpoints a, a date down to two minutes with the moon being at her feet to September the oh. 11th, 3 B.C. Yes, no, that, that's the people that do Bethlehemstar.net. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's great. I, I own that. Uh, the, the, I own the, the DVD as well. And yeah, I, I think they're right. And I love what they say about it. They call it a clockwork star. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, I mean, we are in a clockwork universe. In that sense, we can go back and find out exactly what the night sky looked like. Yeah, I think those guys are from Austin, Texas. And, uh, and what that means is from the very moment God began creation, he would have had that day in mind. Uh, which, yeah, I think, I think that's wonderful. What, what does it say in Psalm 19? The heavens are telling the glory of the Lord. Yeah. And that's exactly right. The stars don't control us, but they do proclaim God. I mean, heck, when Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake and an eclipse of the sun. Right. So, I, I mean, what happens on the earth has its repercussions in the heavens. Yes. The heavens show forth God's glory and his divine plan. Uh, and I just think that's wonderful. And I think that's very appealing to modern people. I, I remember writing something once where I said, the modern world has killed the heavens and the church has performed the funeral. Mm-hmm. And what I meant by that is very often Christians, we're, we're actually very nervous about any talk like this, Justin, because we think it's going to become new age. Yeah, But it doesn't need to be, right? It's absolutely clear in the Bible that numbers have significance right? Even mystical significance. Uh, and God does show forth his glory in the stars, in the heavens, because the same God that created the heavens created us. And so there is a sync between the two. That doesn't mean astrology where our, our, you know, our fortune is controlled by the motion of the stars, but there is a two-way relationship. We are in symph- sympathy with the heavens are in sympathy with us. And I think that we've lost this. I think the church has lost this. Uh, And that's why people are drawn to something like Narnia or Middle Earth, where there's meaning. Again, basically the difference between white magic and black magic is black magic is all about power. And you really need to avoid that kind of stuff because that's demonic. But what you might call white magic is a desire for sympathy for the you i'll just give you a quick we can go off on so many rabbit trails here but a quick example a lot of people don't understand when they're watching lord of the rings and the elves give invisibility cloaks to the uh fellowship a lot of people take for granted that that's like harry potter it's just a magic cloak that makes you invisible no that's what we call instrumental magic if you read the book carefully the reason that those cloaks render them invisible is because the elves who made them put into them the lore of wood and stone and river. So, so there's a sympathy between the weave, the weave of this good and nature itself. And they do it well in the movie when they put the, the cloaks over themselves or on those rocks. It's kind of like a quarry uh, by the Black Gates there by Moranin. And they're not seen because they're almost like a chameleon blending in because it's a deeper magic. It's the very magic of God's creation. 
and I, I think I think we need to reclaim that, Justin. And I think it'll it, it'll be more attractive to people when they realize that there is true and beat magic in Christianity. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, that's why you know shows like Ghost Hunter, Ancient Aliens, and this New Age stuff is is growing in popularity because you have a people that are thirsty for spiritual deeper meanings and esoteric things you know we are seeking you know i mean whether they realize it or not they're seeking god and and the christian church has just been so entruncated with all their viewpoints and don't want to talk about anything weird and and it's like all the answers and the and the coolest quote unquote weirdest things are in your bible but where we have whitewashed it and tried to make it all cookie cutter and acceptable for all and not offend nobody or make anybody uncomfortable, the church is not ready for that conversation. Yeah, it, it is a shame. We've, we've cut ourselves off from the wonder and mystery. I mean, there's no greater magic in the world than God becoming man and yet still being God. I mean, there there is no greater magic than the incarnation, but we miss it. Because I think you're right. We're we're nervous. We want things to be cut and dried and simple, one to one, always, and we're uncomfortable with ambiguity and mystery and wonder. But these are the very essence of of the world in which we live, mm. of our own selves that are you know we are fearfully and wonderfully made, as it says in the Psalms. Well, let's get into some Greek and Roman myths. Uh, I guess since uh, we're on Prometheus lens, let's talk about Prometheus. Oh, he's, he's, he's a great character, one of the most powerful archetypes. Prometheus was a titan, right? The titans are actually older than the Olympian gods. First, there was the heaven and the earth. Those are the original deities. Their offspring are the titans. Uh, the most famous titan is probably Atlas who holds up the universe, but Prometheus was a titan as well. Then the next generation is Zeus and all of his brothers and sisters, the, the gods we're more familiar with. And there was a great war between the uh, between the uh, titans and the Olympians, and Prometheus decided that Zeus was much more civilized and less barbaric than his fellow titans. And so he actually helped Zeus get into power. But once Zeus got into power, he started to act more tyrannically. And there's two parts of the story. A lot of people don't know both of them. One of the tyrannies of Zeus is his ill treatment of man. He was leaving us to fend for ourselves, not helping us, uh, right? And, And Prometheus, the friend of man, decided that he would go against Zeus or Jupiter in, in the Latin, to help man. And so in the famous story, he stole the fire from God and brought it to man. And remember that fire not only allows us to cook our food, keeps us warm when it's cold, scares away wild animals, but fire is also the crucible of all the arts and creativity. The original arts or crafts would be wood making, uh, uh, metal making, uh, pottery, glass blowing. All of these things call for fire. So fire is the very essence of creativity. And to punish Zeus, I'm sorry, to punish Prometheus, Zeus gave him a terrible punishment. He stripped him naked and tied him to the Caucasus Mountains. That's the sort of boundary between Europe and Asia. And he left him up there. 
And every morning, a giant eagle, or sometimes it's a vulture, an eagle swooped down and ate out and devoured his liver. But then every night, it grew back so that the next morning, the eagle would have his feast again. Now, Justin, some people think that that eagle is a myth, but it's actually not a myth. It exists. We call it the IRS. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> yeah. Every year they devour, they allow it to grow back to devour again. So there's often truth in myths. But now, here's the so interesting thing. Was this thing. the inspiration for Groundhog Day? Yeah, I think so. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. It's an amazing story, right? Um, but what's what's crazy about, about the Prometheus story is that if you really think about it, an archetype is a recurring image or event or quest that comes up again and again in every culture, every time. So every culture represents the archetype of the wise old man, whether we call him Obi-Wan Kenobi, or we call him uh, Gandalf, or we call him Dumbledore, or we call him the sensei in the martial arts, or, or the magnificent uh, Sean Connery played lots of these sensei characters uh, towards the end of his life. We recognize that archetype right away. What's interesting about Prometheus is he is a almost disturbing combination of Christ and Satan. Now, that sounds crazy, but in one sense, he is a Satan character because he rebels against God, the sort of chief God, and stealing the fire is an act of rebellion. And yet at the same time, he's a Christ figure because he literally suffers for man by almost literally being crucified on a rock in terrible agony. So it, it's, it's kind of a, of, of a strange sort of thing. But we have to understand that there is the, one, the, the, the virtue of self-sacrifice, but there is also the danger of forbidden knowledge. The stealing of the fire can be seen similar to the uh, eating of the apple, of the forbidden fruit, the fruit of the knowledge of good and of evil. Notice it's a knowledge that is going to bring knowledge, but it's also going to bring despair and shame and other things like that. So we look at the story of Prometheus and we have to wrestle with it and understand what our motives are and when it's right to do this and not. But there's another part of Prometheus that, that is less known. Okay. Uh, Zeus was was the Zeus overthrew his father, whose name was Kronos or 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 Saturn, and Saturn had overthrown his father. Well, in the story, Zeus, as he was getting tyrannical, here's a prophecy that he will have a son who will be greater than him and overthrow him. Now, he wants to avoid this terrible fate, but how can he do it? Well, he comes up with the perfect solution. If he can determine who the goddess is who will give birth to the son that will overthrow him, in other words, a goddess who gives a child who's greater than the husband, all he has to do is avoid her. And Prometheus, whose name means forethought, it literally means forethought, uh, he asks Prometheus, tell me who this woman or this goddess is. But by now, Prometheus is fed up with Zeus, sees him as a tyrant, and so he refuses to tell him. And that's the other reason why Zeus punished him with the eagle, until he would divulge the secret. And eventually, he did divulge the secret. He did tell Zeus, and Zeus avoided uh, marrying that goddess, who instead 
was forced to marry a human father who gave birth to Achilles. That's a whole other story we call the Iliad. Uh, but interestingly, Prometheus in the end was rescued by Hercules, another great Christ figure uh, in Greek mythology who breaks the chain and kills the eagle and sets Prometheus free. So again, when we read a story of Prometheus, it's not like there's one simple answer to it. It is the need to wrestle with issues of power and rebellion, right? After all, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, as they say, and vice versa. How do we know which one? The myths don't always give us answers, but they give us questions and they show us cause and effect and consequence, and they force us to wrestle with the deep issue of ultimately, what does it mean to be human? And I like to, uh, in your question section, it said, can, uh, can a person do a good thing with bad intentions or can a person with bad intentions do good things? So the intention is key. So if you're looking at that story, you have to ask yourself, well, was Prometheus just really pissed off at Zeus and, and wanted, right, yeah. wanted to get him and humanity just benefited as a, you know, as a side effect, or Good. was it he deeply cared for humanity and rebelled against Zeus? Because, I mean, there's a, a big difference between the two. I remember when I was a kid, I can't remember what airline it was, but there turned out to be this titanic battle between the boss and the head of the labor union. And the head of the labor union actually cared nothing whatsoever for his men. It was only a political fight. And what happened was that the two destroyed each other. The whole airline went out of business and all the workers lost their jobs. There's an example where the labor boss doesn't actually care about the real welfare of his workers. He's just as bad as the boss. And all he cares about is winning the battle against somebody that he hates. And, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, somebody in, in, in the legal court who is just trying to win. They don't really care about the stakes. All they want to do is win. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's with us very much. Uh, and we have to be careful. Just like, you know, half of the government programs were started with very good intentions, but they've often led to really, really terrible things. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, you're for, I see you're from Tennessee. I've got a very good friend from Kentucky, from the poor part of Kentucky. And the same thing that the liberal government has done to destroy inner city black neighborhoods has done the same thing to destroy white neighborhoods uh, in Kentucky and, you know, in, in, the, in the hills, you know, the hillbillies, as they say. Uh, a lot of times these were good intentions, but all they've done is leave people with despair and, and no hope and no chance to break out. Uh, I, that's not to say I've probably some of the people that started those programs really thought they were doing good. Uh, but all they did is lead to just terrible breakdown of the family and things like that. And, and uh, so we do have to analyze ourselves. One person said to me, Whenever the government wants to do a new program, they need to ask themselves a five-word question. And then what happens next? <laughs> they don't seem to ever ask that question. Uh, but we or need to now who's thought. going to pay? No, oh, that's a good one. I catch that one. Who's going to pay? Very good. <laughs> but, uh, that's great stuff. When well, I was we, reading we – uh, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, when I was reading through that, uh, I never uh, realized the story with uh, – his Prometheus's brother because his name means oh, yes. forethought and his brother's name is the exact opposite so it's like the right. yin and the yang is afterthought yeah, 
Right, Ep epimetheus, after afterthought, rather than prometheus, before thought, epimetheus, afterthought. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing, a lot of people, most people have heard the story of Pandora's box, but they don't realize they're connected by these two brothers, Prometheus and Epimetheus. Yeah, that was me. And the story, that it's an amazing story of Pandora's box, and especially when we put it together with the Prometheus story, we end up with a very interesting perspective or lens to look at the story of the fall of man in, in Genesis. So uh, the gods create the first woman, and the name of the first woman is Pandora, because Pan means all, and Dora means gift. And all the gods gave her a gift, gave her beauty, gave her uh, you know ability to sing and, and create things and intelligence and running swiftly and all that sort of stuff. And they all gave her every gift to make this beautiful woman. But then... Zeus gave her a box with a you know lid and a little latch on it. And she was told never to open up this box. You need to keep, this is forbidden knowledge and you need to keep it there. And then they took Pandora and married her to Epimetheus, who probably should have been a little more careful before she married this girl, right? Uh, and the two of them were married. And at first everything was going great, but then curiosity killed the cat, as they say, and Pandora had to know what was in that box. And every night she would get up and look at the box and caress it. And then she thought, well, what can it hurt if I just take a little peek? And so she opens the latch and starts to open it. And then whoosh, it flies open. And all the evils of the world from a plague, a famine, a despair, tyranny, murder, all the evils, disease, all of them fly out of the box. And immediately she shuts it. But it's too late. Everything's flown out. But then she hears a still small voice from inside the box saying, Pandora, let me out. Let me out. And she opens the box and out comes hope. And that hope is there to somewhat mitigate the misery that was released. Now, isn't this fascinating that the Greeks told this story of a woman, the first woman, whose curiosity to attain forbidden knowledge ushered all of pain and suffering and death into the world. I mean, that's the story of Eve. But even the part about hope, right? Because even as God is putting curses on the snake, on the man, on the woman, when he curses the woman, I will increase your labor pains, then God gives a tiny ray of hope. And he says to her, I shall put enmity between the woman's seed and the seed of the serpent. The woman, the, the seed of the serpent shall bite his heel, but the seed of the woman shall crush his head. Now, a lot of people call that the proto-evangelium, uh, which is a fancy way of saying the first gospel, the first good news. It's the first prophecy of the Messiah, because the son of the serpent is, is the devil, is Satan. But ultimately, the son of the woman is Christ, the, the promised son. And at the crucifixion, the snake literally came up and bit Jesus on the heel and killed him. But out of that death, Jesus again on the third day, crushing the head of Satan, not to mention this, the head of sin and death itself. So we've got this amazing prophecy right there in the midst. Now, the difference is, that the hope that comes out of Pandora's box is kind of shadowy and insubstantial. But the hope that is promised in Genesis 3 is rock solid 
and will be fulfilled thousands and thousands of years later when it is born and crushes the head of the serpent. But you see how so, and this is why it, people misunderstand this. And you know, people misunderstood it when, when Michael Heiser talked about it. The Genesis 3 is a myth. Now, the difference between the myth of Genesis 3 and Pandora is that Genesis 3 is a true myth. It actually happened, but it's a myth because it's a story about origins to help us understand why things are the way that they are. And in all other cultures, that story, that myth is just a story. But in the Bible, it is the story, the myth that became fact. And that's the title of my book, which comes from C.S. Lewis quote. It is the myth that became fact or the myth that became true. Are you a member of the Prometheus Lens Podcast members only group? And if not, what are you waiting for? Come join the band of brothers on the hero's journey. With this members only package, you get early access to episodes. You get special episodes that nobody else gets, special video content, documentaries, and you help support the show and keep the lights on. You know, doing podcasts, they can be very expensive. A lot of people don't realize all the subscriptions, the website fees, the, the video and audio subscriptions and things like that. So if you enjoy the content, help keep the lights on, help me keep doing what I love to do and keep bringing you fire each and every week. Amen. And that's what I was talking about. You just see little sprinkles of it everywhere and hints of God. And uh, I love just looking into different things because I'm curious like Pandora. But but I've just like recently started looking into, uh, you know, uh, the Tao. Okay, and good. It, it talks about, you know, the yin and the yang. You got order and you got chaos, but in the chaos, you have a speck of order that can come out of it. And then the mm-hmm. same with the opposite side. So it's like with the Genesis three fifteen narrative, with this myth of Pandora's box, you know, yes, there is chaos, but in the midst of it, there's hope, you know, there's order that, that also comes out of the chaos. So we always ha- have a hope. It is, and the funny thing is, Jordan Peterson talks about that. No, I love Chaos and order and stuff like that. Yeah, he's great. He's just great. And uh, I, I love watching those things where the, the, the ladies are mad at him for calling women chaos. And he's like, look, this is a general yin-yang thing. The chaos and the order are both important. But, but anyway, it's just kind of funny. But but yes, that, that is that is a truth that is embedded in the story. Now, that doesn't mean it is only a story. It is more than that. It's true. It is the origin, the first man and woman. But that message is there as well, just as there was a real Cain and a real Abel. But there are also, Jordan Peterson probably is best of all in talking about that story and the danger of resentment and all that sort of stuff. There's also an archetype to that story that we need to learn from. And if we don't learn, we're we're, going to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And I think Jordan Peterson is so popular because he speaks to the truth not only of, 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 of mankind, but the truth of masculinity and femininity and all of these sorts of things and the way they complement each other. Uh, and he's got the courage to speak of these things. And what I love about Jordan Peterson is that he will actually back up what the myths and archetypes are telling us with the actual literature from psychology, mm-hmm. which he actually knows and can quote. I can't know it because God forbid, I don't want to read that nonsense, but thank God he reads it just like Thomas Sowell. He reads all that stuff. I don't want to read either, but thank God he reads it and can quote it and prove his point uh, before his critics. 
and, and, and Jordan Peterson knows the literature and, you know, and knows how that literature has often been obscured purposely. And we have to find out what it really says and what it really means, because it's actually very clear. Um, so, uh, but, but, but yes, uh, that idea of chaos and order is, is very important. Uh, and, and we see it in mythology and we also see it uh, in the Bible. Yeah. And see, I love too, that, uh, you know, we have that in common. We like Jordan Peterson, because you're going to identify with what I'm about to say here is the hero's journey. Right. You know, whether we realize it or not, we are all on the hero's journey, but we right. have the free will to like Jonah, get on the boat and run away from our adventure. Right. But, you know, mine started a few years ago, and since I've been on my journey, I've been, you know, just reading and studying, and doors have been opening up and just learning new things, and it's just, uh, I'm, I'm on my journey, and this is a, a part of my journey, and in Greek mythology and in, in Roman mythology, we have lots of great heroes' journeys, and how Jordan Peterson talks about how you basically just have to dissolve your ego, start fresh, and you go off into the unknown and take the hero's journey. But then on that journey, you're going to be going through valleys and mountains. You're going to have to slay dragons and save damsels. But you're going to come out the other end a hero. Yeah. Uh, so uh, with all that, uh, let's talk about hey, the allegory of the cave. Have you, ever read, uh, have you ever read John Eldridge who wrote Wild at Heart? He's definitely worth reading if you haven't heard of him, John Eldridge. See, I reread your book just last week. I was going through it preparing, and I seen his name in your notes, and I actually have uh, two of his books in my Amazon cart right now. Well, good, good. It was something called Epic, and he, yeah, he, Epic, and yeah. he, was, doing this 20, he was doing this 20 years ago, uh, and, and it's very important. And, of course, the trouble is sometimes you're shut down when you talk about this, not because people don't like myths, but because our ridiculously egalitarian society refuses to allow any differences between men and women, between their journeys, between what they do. And it's like this madness, this desire to break down all distinctions, which is it's just insanity is basically what it is. That's why they attack Jordan Peterson as well, because we've decided the most important thing in life is equity and egalitarian and making everybody the same. God forbid anybody wants to live in that kind of a world. But anyway, the, uh, <laughs> but the, um, but yes, the idea of the journey is, is important that we go on that journey. And what's, what's really kind of cool is that I, I talk about the four great heroes of Greek mythology. Most of them are Hercules. Everybody knows him. Perseus, the one who cut off the head of Medusa. Theseus, the one who killed the Minotaur. And Jason, the one who took the trip and found the Golden Fleece. What's really interesting is all four of those heroes are what are called foundlings. Now, the word foundling literally means the little kid that's put in a basket and left outside the you know, church door and somebody found, finds them and raises them. As a, literally, it's what the foundling is. But the story of the foundling, just put in a simple sense, is somebody who in one way or another is, some, is from some kind of royal blood. But he gets separated from his true home and is raised in some way or another as a peasant. And in his story, he has to come to know who he really is, right? So Perseus is actually uh, the son of Zeus, right? Uh, Theseus is the son of the king of, of Athens. Hercules is also a son of Zeus. Jason, Jason is also the son of the king. 
who's deposed, right? The ultimate foundling is Jesus Christ, the son of God, who everybody thinks is just the son of a humble carpenter. But in some ways, all of us are the foundling. We are all sons and daughters of the king, but we have lost our heritage and forgotten who we are and are raised you know, uh, amongst the wolves, right? I mean, this story sometimes is even uh, Tarzan, uh, you know, Greystoke raised by apes or or Mowgli raised by, uh, what do you call them, by wolves mm. or, or even Pecos Bill raised by coyotes, right? I mean, these stories abound because I think all of us realize that deep down we are of royalty, but we don't realize that. I don't remember where I read this, but somebody tells this great story of a little lion cub who gets separated from the pack and is raised by goats. And one day all the goats are around and a lion appears and jumps up and lands and all the goats scatter in terror, except our little lion cub. For some reason, he's not afraid. And he looks at the lion and the lion roars and then the and the cub goes, eh. and he's, ah, oh, no. And so he takes him over there and he gets him to look in, in the river and he still doesn't. And then the lion kills some prey, gives the fresh meat to the lion cub. His eyes fill and he lets out a roar, right? All of us are that lion cub raised among goats, not realizing our true heritage and who we're like Simba maybe or something. We don't realize who we are. And I think those myths tell us that again and again. Uh, and, and again, uh, one of the stories is a, an odd reverse of that. And that's Moses who is born to poor Jewish parents, but raised as a son of Pharaoh. But actually he was much richer as a Hebrew, right? So that, that's a fun little inversion. In America, the way we tell the story of Abraham Lincoln growing up in a log cabin is very much that archetype of the foundling, uh, whether it's uh, Oliver Twist or, or uh, Luke Skywalker or uh, 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 Harry Potter, right? All of these are variations of that archetype, but I think they speak to us and to the journey we must go on if we are to find out who we are and, and what our true mission is. Because, you know, Justin, uh, the existentialist, Sartre had this mantra, existence precedes essence, by which he meant we're just born as a complete blank slate and we just have to make up everything as we go along. I'll tell you, people may claim to believe that, that existence precedes essence, but nobody lives their life that. Almost every person I've ever met, believer, atheist, whatever, has a sense that they were born with a purpose and a gift, and they have to find out what that gift is, that destiny, and live it out, or they will never be fulfilled. So I think we all know that essence comes before existence. No matter what we say, we know it. And that's why people have made a religion out of the arts and other things like that, because it's the only place they can find transcendence if they deny God. But still, they yearn for transcendence, meaning, purpose, and understanding of who they are and what their calling is in life. And it's a good way, too, just to escape all accountability. Oh, yeah, you know, good do as thou wilt. You know, <laughs> you have no purpose, just life is short, drink and be merry, you know, no, no responsibility. It's a lot easier that way. In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis says that it all comes down to one simple choice. Either we say to God, 
what Jesus said at the Garden of Gethsemane, thy will be done, or God says to us, thy will be done, right? I mean, ultimately, that is the decision, right? And and uh, that's why, you know, in some ways, yes, America's a Christian nation, but oddly enough, what is the real national anthem of America? Justin, do you know that? It's not the Star Spangled Banner. It's not God Bless America. It's not oh, oh, My Country Tis of Thee. It is My Way by Frank Sinatra. That's the national anthem of our country. And I mean, it's a very thrilling song, but is that really the way you want to live your life? Okay, right? Um, that That's the choice. Will it be my way or his way? Now, to, to acknowledge God's way is to acknowledge that he's a creator, that he loves us, and that he gave us the proper operating manual. It's called the Bible. And if we follow that, we will work better, right? If we don't follow the, the model, if we never change the oil on our car, it's going to fall apart, right? Mm. We need to follow the, the instructions of the one who created the car and therefore knows what its purpose is and knows how it is properly to be maintained. Yep. Well, with the, uh, the hero's journey, now, this is technically not a, a hero's uh, journey per se, but I, I perceive it this way, and it's been one of my favorite ones for years, uh, the allegory of the cave. Oh, yeah. i always seen that as, as the Matrix, you know? Yeah, it really is, yeah. It really is. It comes from Plato's Republic, and Plato spins an allegory, a myth, it's almost the same word, spins a myth or an allegory to help us understand our condition. And he says, behold, imagine a deep cave cut deep into the earth. And at the end of the cave, there are a bunch of prisoners. And they are all chained to chairs so that they can only look forward. Now, in front of them is the back wall of the cave. Behind them, behind their backs, there is a raised platform. And there are puppeteers with puppets, stick puppets of everything on the earth, and they're moving those stick puppets back and forth. But behind the puppets is a raging fire. And as the puppeteers move their puppets, the shadow of those puppets are cast onto the cave wall. And throughout their life, all those prisoners have seen is the shadow of the shadow, the shadow that the fire casts of the shadow puppets on the wall. And because that's all they've ever seen in their lives, they think that that is reality. And they play games, wondering what the next shadow will be that will appear on the wall. And some are better at it, and some are worse at it, and they fight back and forth, and they give prizes. Right. What happens one day if one of those prisoners is set free? Their chains are broken. The man would turn around, and immediately he would be blinded by the fire. He would grope around until his eyes got accustomed, and then he would start realizing what's going on. He'd see the puppeteers with their little cutout puppets. He sees the fire and the shadows. And let's say he has courage. He continues his journey up and out of the cave. He's now in the real world. At first, his eyes are blinded by the sun, and he can only look at the shadows of things and rivers and whatnot. But eventually, he will see the real things, until finally he can look up and see the sun. 
Now, the man is going to want to stay out there and enjoy the reality of the real world, but he knows he has a job. And so he goes back into the cave and tries to convince the prisoners of their real condition. But no one will listen to him. They laugh at him. They won't listen to him because now that he's seen the sun, he no longer can play that silly game of guessing which shadow will come next because it's not only meaningless to him, his eyes are already accustomed to real light and don't do very well down there. So people now think, well, obviously he's an idiot because he can't do that. And if he persists, they will put him to death. Now, uh, Plato was certainly thinking about his great teacher, Socrates, who was put to death, but it also reads like a prophecy of Christ put to death for trying to tell us the reality of our situation. So it takes a great deal of courage. And you know what? Not only uh, is it a wonderful metaphor that the Matrix certainly was playing with, but think about the wonderful great ending of The Truman Show. Have you seen The Truman Show, Justin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's uh, it's in a the great dome. Movie. Yeah, and in a way, that's also a, a kind of replaying of this allegory of the cave where he comes out and he realizes there's a door in the sky, right? And he opens it up, and there's a reality, and the woman he really loved is out there as well. Uh, but it takes courage to move forward, to move out of the shadows, out of the uh, unreality that we think of as reality, and move forward. The best way to sum this up is a beautiful hymn. Most people know this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now you know why I chose that cover art. Are you ready to leave the cave? This makes you think. You know, scripture even tells you that this world is an imitation of the heavenly realm. You know, on earth as it is in heaven. When we discover the light, the truth, we're to tell others, even to death like Christ. And look at all the missionaries throughout history who lived this very tale of the allegory of the cave. The hero's journey is a hard road, especially alone. So that's why I'm forming this community of brothers and sisters take this track together so once again thank you for coming along on this hero's journey with me that's really the story of ascending the rising path towards spiritual light towards truth away from the shadows and towards it that's why i think oddly enough you know Back in the, good Lord, I wish we could have the hippies and beatniks back. They're so much better than these modern woke kids who claim to want the truth, but all they do is cancel everybody else and are unwilling to give up anything that they have. Forget that. I, I have to, I, even though obviously I disagree with the, the hippies, I have to respect them because those hippies, in their search for authenticity and truth and non-hypocrisy, were actually willing to give up everything. I'm going to go live. I'm going to live simply. I'm going to live in a trailer. Not these kids. These entitled kids want everything. Um, and you know what? A lot of those hippies ended up coming to faith. Watch the movie The Jesus Revolution, which oh, is a yeah. great, really great, one of the best Christian-made movies I've seen. Um, and, and Jesus is in it, <laughs> the guy from The Chosen. Yeah. And anyway, um, but a lot of them came because I think 
they were not about virtue signaling, not about cancel culture. I do think a lot of them were really seeking an authenticity apart from a lot of the hypocrisy they saw in the churches when they grew up. And I, I believe if you are truly seeking after that truth and you are open to it, God will reveal himself to you and you will get to the end of the journey. But it takes a lot of courage. And again, it's not about virtue signaling. It's about putting down your ego and going out and see. I'll say one thing that might help. C.S. Lewis, uh, of course, loved fantasy, wrote fantasy, but he was not a fan of what he calls uh, 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 school stories. And what school stories were, were the stories about the picked on kid that suddenly becomes the head of the football two squad and gets everyone. He's like, no. He says, those stories build up vanity, resentment, envy, all of that stuff. But a real fairy tale does not cause envy and resentment. It brings about humility and wonder and awe in the face of something grander than you are. So any Christian parent that's listening to this, stop thinking that it's evil to let your kids read fantasy. Some, now, obviously, you have to be careful. There are some fantasies that are, you know, meant to be demonic, but that is not the case with Harry Potter or most of the other ones, right? Most of the fantasy is teaching kids to come out of themselves and see something that is greater. What you want to keep them away from is all the books about resentment and victimization and all that sort of stuff that do not strengthen you. They only make you feel like a victim while victimizing other people. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. So, most fantasy is actually going to be much healthier for your child than a lot of the resentment literature that's coming out right now. And that's the thing too, is like we are built to, to wonder, to ask questions and, and imagination that that's some, that's a gift from God to, to seek the divine. And I love how you mentioned that movie, you know, uh, when I made that comment earlier, when I said, you know, the, this age is seeking God, whether they realize it or not, I kind of stole it from that movie because, uh, when, uh, Lonnie Frisbee, uh, went to that old man's house, that preacher's house, you know, beforehand, he was saying, all oh, those hippies, they stink, they smell bad, you know, and oh, all this yeah. kind of stuff, you know, and she's like, well, don't you want to talk to him? He's like, well, if God wants me to talk to him, he'll put one in my path. So she went and got him and brought him to the house. Oh, and then when he gets there, you know, he's like, yeah, you just need a bath. And all you do is take drugs and acid and all this kind of stuff. And the line Frisbee looks at him at the dinner table and he's like, whether they realize it or not, they're seeking God. Yeah. So we, we need to be there with the open doors and show them who God really is. Here, here's, here's the most uh, brazen uh, expression of that. G.K. Chesterton once said that, in a sense, every man who knocks on a brothel door is looking for God. Now, what he means by that is not the prostitution is somehow okay or fornication, but the person that goes in search of that is ultimately seeking something beyond this world. They don't know what they're doing. And so their desire has been twisted and misdirected and goes off in the wrong direction. But, you know, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, he does not condemn her for desiring, you know, uh, acceptance and love and all these things. He tells her that basically you're looking for the right thing, but you're looking in the wrong way. You're only hurting yourself let me give you the living water that you need that will be like a spring inside of you springing up to eternal life. 
So again, sometimes we demonize the desire when the problem is not the desire. The desire was put in there by God, but we are following it in a misdirected and ultimately self-destructive way. The point is to take that desire and direct it in the proper direction towards the creator, the one who knows us because he created us. <laughs> well, uh, while we still got some time, uh, you care to go over uh, Jason and the Golden Fleece? That's probably one of my favorites because it's like the, you know, like when I was growing up in the 80s, it was, you know, the 18. You know, Mr. T and the assembling oh, right. all the oh, warriors. Yeah, that is it, yeah. You know, so. The whole idea of the quest. Yes. Like, even, even movies, there's so many movies that are, that, what are they called? They're called heist movies, where a group of gangsters is trying to steal something. And even though they're the bad guys, right, the, the fact that they've got this quest, this treasure they want to take, I mean, in a sense, they're stealing the golden fleece also. So yeah. it is a quest, but it's also it's also the first heist movie, actually, right? Yeah. They're stealing something that isn't theirs. I mean, it used to be from there, but anyway. Um, but it's it's a great story of Jason. And again, uh, Jason's father was displaced by his brother. It's just like the story of Hamlet or the Lion, Lion King, which King. is Hamlet the Jungle, right? The Lion King is Hamlet the Jungle. And so uh, Jason, you know, is is in a way sent into exile. He's a foundling, grows up as a poor man until he realizes who he is. And then he sets back to the you know the palace the the headquarters to seek his destiny uh and he's wearing two sandals but he helps this poor person cross the river and because of that loses a sandal and when he gets there the evil his uncle the evil usurper had heard a prophecy beware of a man with one sandal right and so he knows that this is the person that will exact justice and normally you would think why doesn't he kill him but he's still his nephew so you, that would bring blood guilt. And so what a lot of villains do is I can't kill you. So what I'll do is send you on a wild goose chase, an impossible quest that you can never survive. And so you'll die that way. And I'll not have any blood on my hands. Yeah, well, David did that to Sheba, Sheba's husband. I accidentally misspoke here. It was Bathsheba. And I totally threw him for a loop and confused him. Oh, 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 the, wait, are you talking about the Queen of Sheba in the Bible? Well, uh, you know, uh, King David, uh, he looked down uh, from his roof oh, and saw oh, the, the beautiful woman, Bathsheba. Yeah, and he, so oh, he, right, instead yes. of killing the husband, he sent him off to the front of the line. <laughs> that's right, that's right, you're right. So he's like, well, I didn't actually kill him. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he, he says, have Uriah go out in the front and then withdraw your men. So he'll charge. Of course, Uriah, as far as he knew, he just died a hero. That's the way he would have wanted to die anyway. Ah, Valhalla, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, that's true. It's kind of like a, you you always send them on something they 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 can't survive, right? They, they, uh, the same thing happened with Perseus. He was sent to kill Medusa as a way to get himself killed. Uh, and then I don't have to worry about killing him myself. Um, so Jason gathers together all the great heroes of his day. Uh, Hercules is one of those heroes. A lot of the other heroes that go with him are the fathers of the people that will be in the Trojan War. So Achilles' father, Peleus, is one of the Argonauts. The, the name of his ship is the Argos. So the Argonauts are the sailors of the Argo. Uh, also, Tidius uh, goes. He's the, he's the uh, father of Diomedes. A, a lot of the uh, heroes are there. And so they go on a journey. And it's a magical journey that they face all sorts of things like Scylla and Charybdis and all these sorts of things and monsters and whatnot. Uh, 
And finally, they get to their destination. Now, when this happens, another archetype kicks in. And that is uh, Jason would have certainly been killed by the, the tyrannical king who controlled the golden fleece. His name was Eetes. But Eetes had a daughter, and the daughter's name was Medea. And Medea falls in love with Jason. And Medea helps Jason to win. And this happens in a lot of myths where the, the hero cannot do it alone. He needs the lovely lady who is beautiful, but also resourceful. Uh, that's also the story of Theseus killing the Minotaur. He needs the help of the lovely heroine to help him you know, succeed in his quest. Uh, and she gives him a lot of magic and all that sort of stuff. And he eventually gets the golden fleece and returns with it. And again, this, this idea of the quest, a lot of times in mythology, the quest takes you through the underworld. Odysseus has to go through the underworld. Hercules goes through the underworld. There's even a story about Theseus. Of course, Aeneas in Roman mythology. Orpheus is probably the first person. And when you go on a quest, especially into the underworld or into a dark forest, you're facing that which you fear the most. It's an archetype of facing your own mortality, uh, of, of standing up against the fear of the dark that we all still fear, the, the fear of the unknown, and the need to draw together, you know, we few, we happy few, the band of brothers who will go into hell with you and show their courage and win the prize. Powerful stuff right there. That's exactly what I'm talking about. John Eldridge, he mentioned him earlier. He had a quote. He said, deep down, all men are heroes in search of a battle, and all women, princesses, seeking to be rescued. Pretty profound stuff. And please, ladies, don't over-examine that. I'm not trying to be sexist. Remember, Xena was a warrior princess. Uh, and it's wonderful. And the prize, in, in a sense, is almost a kind of immortality sometimes. Uh, but I think we all recognize that quest. I think we all want to go on a quest, kill a dragon, rescue a maiden, do all of these things. Uh, because it's, it's, I mean, first of all, we have to remember that, you know, we are in a spiritual struggle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. So we don't want to you know, look for demons everywhere. But there is a spiritual dimension to this. And I was just doing an, inter an interview, a podcast last week about the early Christian martyrs. And if you read the earliest martyrs from the you know first, second, third century, they are all absolutely aware that the real villain is not Rome, it's the devil. That the real struggle they have against is, is, is the evil that's working out. Uh, and, and again, we, we, I think we also need to be tested, especially men need to be tested. Our courage, our resolve, Will we do this or will we not? And one thing I wanted to touch on that he didn't touch was Jason and Medea. You know, do they live happily ever after? Well, if you read the story, no, they don't. And it's crazy when you look at these old myths and stories. Uh, the women, you know, usually come in and aid and help the man and strengthen the man to, to win. But then at the same time, the woman is his kryptonite. And not necessarily that same woman, but just women in general. It shows the control, you know, that, that women have over men. They do. I mean, it goes all the way back to the garden. And what's crazy is him and Medea go back and 
she releases the the curse on his father and actually reverses his aging and brings him back to, so he can make up for all his lost years when he was you know put in prison by his evil brother. Medea was the famous niece of Circe the witch, so she also tells the daughters of the evil uncle that she can do the same for their father, but they would have to kill him drain his blood and bring her the blood and she could cast a spell on it and put it back into him and do the same and they tricked the girls the girls go and kill their father drain his blood takes it to her and she just laughs and refuses to help them so she had a very evil and sadistic side and what he didn't tell you is how she aided jason and the argonauts to escape she captured her own brother chopped him up in 12 pieces and threw his body parts out of the boat one by one as her father was approaching in his ships so he had to keep stopping and picking up the, the pieces of his son's body so he could give him the proper burial pretty evil stuff and because of all the wicked things that Medea done she kind of isolated Jason and he had no allies in the land nobody wanted to mess with him because of his evil and wicked wife but he did have two sons with her and he ended up forming an alliance with a, another king. But in order for the deal to go down, he had to marry his daughter. So he had to take a second wife. Well, Medea agreed. But she said that she wanted to make this new bride a dress. That way she could be beautiful on her wedding day. And of course, you know where I'm probably going with this. She put a spell on it. So when she put it on, it stuck to her, and she caught on fire, and she burned up in flames. And the father of the bride that tried to put her out, as soon as he touched her, he engulfed and flamed and burned up also. And then she fled. Jason, in a fit of anger, goes home to, to kill her. And when he gets home, he finds his two sons murdered by their own mother. And she fled and was never seen again by Jason. It's just crazy how these myths have a, a dark element to them and how quickly they can turn. But I thought that was really interesting. I never knew that until I read his book, and I thought you guys would find that interesting too. I'll get back to the episode. And we do it vicariously through the story. And I think it's important for children to, I mean, uh, in, in the Western world, probably the most famous quest is the quest for the Holy Grail, right? Which is not only the cup that held the wine of the Last Supper, but is, it is the cup of legend that Joseph Arimathea, after Jesus was pierced in the side by the spear, he, he took some of the blood from Christ and, and, and kept it and then took it away with him to England so that the Monty Python crew could find it. Anyway, <laughs> but the Holy Grail is... A sort of search for, you know, even Indiana Jones went on a quest for the Holy Grail, right? And, and what it means, the sacred object that promises uh, immortality, ultimately. Uh, again, it's a, it's a very deep thing, and I think it's an important thing uh, that, that we need uh, to know about. And I like how Jordan Peterson said, too, he said, mankind, well, I think, I think he said man instead of mankind, but it was either man or mankind, but he said, men need three things to be fulfilled in life. He said, they need uh, a, a quest or an adventure, oh, right. a, a woman or a damsel to save, and a monster to defeat. Yeah, that, that is John 
Eldridge we were talking about before. Yeah, he does talk like, about that. I was like, that's so uh, and, cool. And it resonates with me. And, and I love how Jordan Peterson talked about how if you look at all the myths, he says they they go into the, the, the darkness or the deep unknown, face their fears, uh, slay the dragon. He said in, in most almost every single case, they take a piece from the beast and use it as a weapon or a tool in their next adventures. He said, so it's kind of like life's lessons. He said, so it's like when you hit a trial or you face your giant or monster, you take a lesson from that and it helps you on your next one. So he's talking about, you know, Hercules, when he killed the lion, he took the, the hard skin. And right, made right, the lion. That's right. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, talked about all these just different stories, how like somebody slayed a dragon, they took the, the tooth and then, the, what was it? Hercules took the the blood of uh, the Hydra to dip oh, the, uh, the poisonous right. arrows. So it's like every time right. they conquer their fear, they take a piece of that fear or whatever you want to analogy you use, but take it to the next adventure. So it, it, you're constantly building and getting better as you go. It is powerful. And, you know, there was a book that came out called "It's Good to Be a Man," and they made a very good point. I think, especially for Christian men, you know, who are looking for a wife, he said. Your job is first to figure out what your quest is, what your gifting, what's your goal, what, what mission God has given you. And then you find a woman who wants to join that mission with you. And there are still lots of good women out there that want to join with a man who actually has vision. But so many young men don't have vision anymore. It's been partly because it's been beaten out of us uh, by all this craziness. But it, it's important to have a goal that you're going towards. And that the two of you can do that together, achieve that together. And I thought that was good advice. Yeah. Well, well Lewis, I really appreciate your time and uh, sitting down with us. And uh, uh, I'd love to do it again sometime soon when you get your schedule cleared up. And But like I said, I really appreciate your time. I don't want to take advantage of it. I've had you for a while now. <laughs> yeah, well, great. That was good stuff. And like I said, this is this is important stuff and it's essential. Yeah, my, my book, uh, Myth Made Fact, it goes over 50 different myths, uh, and I go over all the interpretation. Like you said, I, I, I haven't really written a book like this before where I've got like two pages of questions for every age, every kind of person. So you could you could use it to teach. You could use it as a devotional book at night. You could use it for a, a book study group of adults where you get together and discuss things. Uh, because, I, again, I think by wrestling with these things, it will give us clarity of, you know, who we are and, and what our mission is uh so again it's good stuff and and it's also on audible and i actually did the i actually did the audiobook read it out loud i've never done an audiobook before the whole thing uh, and so on audible if you look for myth made fact i get to read it out loud myself and that was kind of a fun process nice but say i want to check out the the two you mentioned what was it uh achilles to christ oh, and achilles plato to christ, christ. I mean, if you, if you just go to Amazon and type in my name, Lewis Marcos, M-A-R-K-O-S, you'll see all my books, my Amazon author page. And if you go to YouTube and type in my name, Lewis Marcos, you'll see some of the videos I put up there. Uh, and and uh, but but yeah, there's, there's there's lots of stuff out there. And and uh, I'm now I'm working on a book about about Aristotle <laughs> since I've done Plato to Christ and Achilles to Christ uh, because I love to make those connections. That's one of the things that I find really exciting. Uh, I call them synthetic books, not because they're artificial, but because they synthesize or bring together or make connections. That's the, the aha moment when the light bulb goes off and you realize how things are connected. To me, 
that's the joy of learning. And that's what I try to pass on in my books and in my talks in one way or another. Let's look for how all these things work together. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And see, that's the thing. I mean, everybody, uh-huh. I know everybody's different, but, you know, like me, and you sound a lot like me, drawing the, the lines between the points and connecting the dots and seeing that full mosaic picture, it just brings a whole new appreciation for things. And uh, like I said, I was a Christian all my life, but when I started reading these books and discovering all these connections, you know, here, there, everywhere, it just really uh, brought a whole new appreciation for me. So other people, I'm sure, are, are like-minded and need to hear some of this stuff. Great stuff. Great stuff. They say the hardest part of any journey is the first step. Well, we've accomplished that today. I recorded quite a few episodes so far, but I thought this one was a very appropriate one for our first one. You know, this is the hero's journey after all. So we must know and be able to define what the hero's journey is. And it's great to see the stories that are told in these myths and these these parables and how they apply to our everyday life. Hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, hope you come back for day two of the journey. And you guys continue on with me. Please help me and support me to grow this show. Share this with your friends. Give me a rating on Spotify or Apple iTunes or wherever you listen to this at. And until next time, Torch is high.